0: Hello and welcome to the Not The Top 20 podcast. It's the Monday pod, the 8th of May, Bank Holiday Monday. And soon after the conclusion of the EFL regular season. I'm Ali Maxwell. I'm with George Ellick. We are sponsored by Betfair. And, George, one of the greatest things that the EFL do is stagger final day. Because over the course of the last... 30 hours, we've been treated to three of them. And they saved the best till last.
1: Three final days. Yeah, for full transparency, we're recording this straight after the end of the championship games. So we've just witnessed what has been a topsy-turvy, full of drama. I think, the, as you say, of the three leagues, certainly it produced, as it always does, the championship produced the best. And
0: Is that true, though? We've many times over no. the history of this pod, Intu- no. we've sat here and said the championship isn't necessarily the most dramatic League of the Three. Mm,
1: not We don't say not dramatic. Unpredictable is what we say. Yeah. It isn't. Dramatic is very different.
0: Do you think the Championship, more than League One, League Two, produces notably more drama? There are
1: more goals. Uh.
0: So, yeah, in a way. What, more goals per game across the whole season? Mm-hmm. Or just on final day?
1: No, across the whole season.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, this start will give you an idea of what will be to come. It'll be a strange pod that you'll listen to. Uh, hopefully fun because of that fact, three different kickoff times for the three leagues and three different recording times. Recording the championship section last, uh, then you'll hear League One and then you'll hear League Two. And I dare say you'll notice a difference in the three divisions worth of analysis because we've recorded at different times. There may or may not have been a trip to the pub uh, to enjoy some of the championship action and drama. Let's all have a good time. We're starting in the Championship, George, where, because of Reading's midweek relegation after Huddersfield had managed to beat Sheffield United, the only thing that mattered or that really had something riding on it was the playoff picture. But there were two spots up for grabs. Fifth, I'm going to start by telling you who's made the playoffs. Okay. Coventry City have finished fifth and Sunderland have finished sixth. But next up, we have to ask, how did it happen? And I guess we probably have to start at the Den where Millwall hosted Blackburn Rovers. There was a chance that Blackburn could have made the playoffs with a big win and results elsewhere. Spoiler alert, results did not go elsewhere for Blackburn. But this one did. And how? Millwall, 3-1 up at half time, Lost 4-3 to Yondale Thomason's Blackburn Rovers. And Millwall, as a result, have missed out on the playoffs. What the hell happened at the Den?
1: Yeah, in the last couple of weeks, I've spoken about how the term bottle job is used too often in football. And (laughs) you can't take anything away from Millwall's season and to get themselves in the position to be 3-1 up. So two goals clear, basically needing a point in order to secure their um, playoff place for this season, yet yeah, to squander that lead, and to lose the game 4-3, at home, to a side on Blackburn, who looked unbelievably motivated, in the second half, despite surely knowing, that realistically, they didn't stand a chance, of breaking into the top six, given results elsewhere, we're going against them, is going to be incredibly hard, to wrap your head around, it is so, you know, it's the complete opposite, of what we've become used to seeing, from Millwall, and the Gary Rowett, it's very different, to what we're used to seeing, from a Gary Rowett side anyway, um, and to be honest this, you know the second half was a bit of an onslaught from from rovers where not only did they create the chances to score the three goals uh we saw scott malone with one of the most incredible clearances off the line i've ever seen uh, prior to that you know the the pressure was was fairly relentless although you know millwall did create a couple of chances themselves you know at the end of a 46 game season to basically have 45 and a half games of 10 out of 10 over performance, like an incredible season and achievement, all unraveled in the second half, is going to be so hard for those involved to come to terms with. Um, Fair play to Sunderland for doing their part and going to Preston and winning 3-0. Their away form is seriously impressive. Tony Mowbray coming out afterwards and saying that both Lyndon Gooch and Dennis Serkin are both injured now going to the playoffs. just means they basically don't have any defenders left. So I don't know how that's going to look going to Luton. Although if I was a Luton fan, I'd be quite perturbed that um you know the team you're playing are, are basically an away an away team effectively so you kind of that home advantage you expect um to be your advantage isn't ideal um but it's yeah it's an incredible final day i said to you when we walked down to our local pub by the office to watch the second half i was like should we just not bother watching the games because we know what's going to happen here
0: (laughs) idiot yeah
1: the championship mate (laughs) all he produces
0: the greatest most unpredictable league in the world apart from maybe league two Uh, hard to measure I I just want to co-sign what you said about Millwall in particular the surprise of it all I mean when I think of Millwall as a football team under Gary Rowett and what I have learned about how he manages that team it's that for how long's has he been in charge? Over three years now, I think. The most important thing for Millwall, and this isn't the same for every team, is shape, is maintaining a compact shape. Not necessarily super low block, super defensive, like this isn't absolutely sit deep and shell it style stuff. They've developed into a good attacking team this season. And we saw it in the first half here where they played some really good, aggressive, quick, direct football. But out of possession, Rowit's priority, as far as I understand it, is absolute shape. And if you coach that for three years, it's very hard to understand how a team could lose their shape and their control out of possession as much as in it to this extent. I'm really struggling to get my head around it. I could understand other teams struggling with this part of the game, particularly in pressure environments such as this. But for Millwall at 3-1 up to struggle in that second half to the extent that they did has absolutely flummoxed me. Now, what I want to say off the back of that is we also discussed in the pub how the last four to six weeks of watching Blackburn Rovers has probably, for you and I, done more for our perception of the coach that Yondell Thomason is than the first six months of the season in which they were actually occupying the top six. And that seems like a weird thing to say, but I honestly believe, particularly today, particularly in that televised game against Huddersfield and a few others, that what I've seen from them in terms of patterns of play and their attacking play in particular, their possession bits and bobs and the rotations and the movement that have created some great chances and and, and led to them scoring some good goals, on top of what was already a team that countered really well. All season they have counter very, very well and Diaz is a huge part of that because he's an absolute menace on the break playing that sort of left forward side role. But they have developed so much in possession and we saw that again, the dual threat of, of the counter-attack where they scored the, was it the fourth goal that they scored was very much on the break following a millwall chance but loads of other occasions where the possession stuff not not in transition just normal possession play was really impressive and so although blackburn are not the beneficiaries of millwall falling out of the playoffs and they have missed out on the playoffs despite having been in the top 6 all season and i dare say that will hurt a lot of blackburn rovers fans on the face of it the way that you and i see things it's kind of weird like i feel positive probably more positive about them and what i've seen than I ever did for the whole season and yet they haven't made it. I I don't know what I think. It's confusing. Yeah, I mean it's
1: outcome bias, um, is what you and I would call it. And I think there'll be a lot of Blackburn fans listening probably wondering how we could possibly be looking at a side because that's you know, that's the facts are that the Blackburn were sitting in third or fourth for the majority of the season. And if you look at their run until that win um today they hadn't won in their previous eight league games. So, I mean, it is hard to make a case for the results being uh, anything short of, you know, just a total disaster in terms of trying to get into the playoffs, especially when you look now at how close they were. They missed out on goal difference. But I do agree that the process in terms of of the way that they've played, you know, they were a massive data outlier for the first six months of the season, and anybody I know, whether they work in analytics or whether they work in gambling or whatever, has basically had Blackburn as a dead certainty to uh, to regress as the season's gone on because they were over overperforming their XG by what and all basically data um, points by as much as they were. However, watching them over the course of the season, it's definitely felt in my mind, at least, that as you say, in possession, they've looked like a far better side despite the results being poor. Like this is just a classic case where there are going to be people who say only results matter, only the league table matters. How can you make an excuse for this total aberration of form against those who look at processes rather than just results? And, you know, that is an, an ongoing battle within football where we've clearly put our stall down, stall out where we sit in that. And there are going to be people who listen to that this pod who, who sit on the other side of it. But... You know, I, I totally agree that you know. In my mind, I've seen more in the last, well, basically since February, to suggest that they are on the right path than if you'd asked me in January or February. I thought that Yondell Thomason was probably, you know, a bit of a, a bit of a myth in terms of what he was doing at, at Rovers. You know, I think the I think Wharton being recalled back to the side, he scored a lovely goal today, um, has been a massive plus. I I don't really understand why after such a promising start to his his you know, his his senior career. He was taken out of the team and was brought back for cup games, suggesting it wasn't really a fitness issue. I don't really get it. I think he's like a generational talent at this level. Um, and I think they're in a, a you know, they're going to lose Britton Diaz. But again, you'd say that his influence, despite scoring two goals today, is probably far less than it was 12 months ago. I think, in, you know, we've seen Dolan step forward again this season. I think Wharton's emergence is huge. Um, and I still maintain in my mind, when you look at this Rovers squad on paper, I think for them to be knocking around the playoffs and sitting in third and fourth for the majority of a campaign is is a a massive achievement in itself. Like, I I don't think individuals, in terms of individuals, this is a squad that you should expect to be in the top six. So they're they're one of the kind of weirdest uh, teams to wrap your head around, I think, in the whole EFL uh, over the the last three seasons because the last two campaigns of Tony Mowbray's tenure and this campaign have had a very very similar trend and a lot of Rovers fans blamed Mowbray for that and thought it was a trait of his that his teams would fall away well his Sunderland side were 11th a few weeks ago and they've gone on an incredible run and ironically a Blackburn win has enabled them to to force their way into the playoffs so yeah maybe it wasn't Tony after all
0: Tony Mowbray's teams always fall away at the end of the season myth busted (laughs) And pleasingly so, because Tony Mowbray will lead Sunderland into the playoffs. They will play Luton in them, George. They went to Preston and they won 3-0. And the first half was fairly close. There was a strong penalty appeal for Sunderland, not given. And then at halftime... An injury, an injury to Dennis Serkin. Dennis Sirkin had to be subbed off. Now, anyone listening to the pod or Sunderli- uh, following, Sunderling following Sunderland uh, will know that they have had some uh, fair defensive issues recently. Well, Serkin's injury meant that at half-time, on came Alex Pritchard for Dennis Sirkin, the left-back. Pritchard very much a number 10 type. And for the second half, Sunderland's back three was... Try Hume, a right-back, playing right centre-back. Luke Nine, a utility player, playing centre-back. Uh, and uh, Joe Anderson, uh, who'd only played 18 minutes this season before today, uh, playing left-sided centre-back. Patrick Roberts was the right-wing-back and Jack Clark, the left-wing-back. It sums up what Mowbray's having to deal with at the moment. It means that their continued success and their ascent into the top six is just absolutely insane. And yet, George, the goals that they scored today at Preston just summed up what they are and why we should all be excited to watch them in the playoffs. Brilliant strikes from brilliant technical players. Diallo first, Pritchard second, Jack Clark third. Sunderland promoted from League One last season. No promoted team had finished, I think, in the top half of the championship for many a year. Not only have they done that, they're into the playoffs as well. They could win promotion to the Premier League.
1: And that in itself, again, would be, I think you can look at the the size of the club in Sunderland and think, yes, this is where they should be. I mean, this is a Sunderland side or Sunderland as a club that are in a completely different stratosphere to the Sunderland uh, that were relegated into League One. Like if you look at their wage bill and you look at the, um, the profile of player that they sign and they have in their squad, no more washed up internationals on Premier League salaries. This is a team full of young talent They've exploited the loan market incredibly well. Amad Diallo showing his class again today with a brilliant left-footed strike into the top corner, the opening goal, the all-important goal. Um, because if Sunderland hadn't won this, then of course it would have been Blackburn who'd snuck in uh, to the playoffs. And um, yeah, I mean they're just an incredible team to watch. And when you consider that they went into the season with two strikers, and Sims and Ross Stewart. Sims was, was recalled in January, having been injured for the most part of the campaign. Ross Stewart has basically spent the whole season injured. For Tony Mowbray to get them where they are, to overachieve the amount that they have done, you know they were a team who went up in the playoffs last season. They weren't even one of the one of the top two in the uh, in in League One. And when you when you consider when the teams who went up and how they've gone on the season, like well, it's when just... you consider
0: that MK Dons finished third above them last exactly. season, and they'll be playing in League Two next yeah, year. Yeah, I mean
1: it's it's an unbelievable achievement, and just a bit of respect, please, for Tony Mowbray who came into a club in a, in a bit of a tangle with Alex Neil. You know, the architect of their return to the championship just turning his back on them. And that in itself is fairly telling when you've got a manager who's recently arrived at the club, recently won promotion, got massive popularity with a fan base. Basically having a look at another championship club and saying, yeah, you know what, I'm going to take that job instead. It's not a big vote of confidence in terms of the project that they're undertaking. Um, but again, Sunderland, you know, in a similar way to Argyle, are an example where you look at a club where uh, since... Um, Kirill Louis-Dreyfus came in they had a very clear idea of how they wanted to do things they appointed a sporting director in Christian Speakman who's clearly been given a lot of responsibility in terms of hiring and firing and managers in terms of recruitment in terms of uh, choosing a, a profile of player in a way that they want to play in recruiting for that and it's worked unbelievably well and in a league where you feel like a lot of these clubs are not run particularly well and do not have joined up thinking when it comes to strategy it just goes to show that just a little bit of you know, it's still a head start to have smart people recruiting well and making the correct decisions. Um, it's a massive achievement for them to finish in the top six. They're going to have their work cut out, as I say, um, given the injuries that they've got. And it's a, it's a pretty tough assignment to go to, well, to, to play Luton over two legs at the moment. Um, but they should be incredibly proud of an unbelievable achievement. And, you know, it may have taken some time, but Sunderland as a football club are just in a, a completely different place now to where they were in the previous decade when they came down.
0: Could not agree more, and for them to have won so handsomely away from home was no surprise, really, because it's away from home, as you mentioned, where they've been so strong. Uh, It's actually at home, where, if anything, it felt like they may have dropped points that could have cost them. Um, Most notably, the 4 all draw against... Hull, what, four or five weeks ago? Uh, The one-all draw against Huddersfield a couple of weeks ago, even going two down to to Watford uh, last weekend. It could have been made a bit easier for them, uh, but it wasn't. Uh, They've done it the hard way, and I dare say there'll be some Sunderland fans that are sitting there nodding, saying, yeah, we always do it the hard way. That's how we do it. Uh, They're heading into the playoffs to play Luton. It's interesting that fact that Sunderland will host Luton for the first leg. Generally, uh, it's considered that uh, hosting Uh, Second is the sort of best thing that you can do. Home advantage in the second leg being uh, a reward. Uh, And yet you have a Sunderland team who have the fourth best record away from home in the championship this season compared to the 16th best record at home this season. And they play a Luton team who've got an even better away record than them by two points. The second best in the division, uh, Luton's home uh, return, the ninth best in the division. So that'll be a very interesting one. We will be previewing the playoffs in depth in just two or three days time and we cannot wait for that pod but so far today this is just a final day reaction Uh, we will be talking about borough and coventry in a couple of days in depth they played each other today they drew one all Uh, that result means that they will go again twice more in the playoffs gus harmer scored for coventry in the first half cameron archer Equalised in first half injury time. There was a report on Soccer Saturday that Harmer was feeling his knee at one point, but he did play ninety. That certainly uh, is cause for happiness because a a harmless Coventry would be a real shame to watch in the playoffs. This should be a fantastic matchup uh, in the playoffs. What else do we need to talk about, George? I think we should actually touch on Coventry officially being a playoff team because it's a Coventry City side that had 1 point after 5 games that had 7 points after 10 games bottom of the championship at that time a lot of the issues were off the field bleeding onto the field because they had to play 7 of their first 10 uh, games this season sorry 7 of their first 9 games this season away from home uh, due to the fact they were not able to play at the CBS Arena after the Commonwealth Games, Rugby Sevens. It actually seems like a joke saying that out loud now. It felt like a joke at the time, even more so uh, nine months later, but certainly is the starting point for a conversation about an incredible turnaround from this football club and from its manager Mark Robbins do you
1: remember at the the beginning of the season when we were reading out the league tables we had to keep being like commentary at bottom but you know remember like that's because they haven't played as many games and because they've only played away games but they won't be but they won't be but (laughs) I I don't think we anticipated they'd finish fifth Um, unbelievable incredible and you know if you'd asked me in August when Coventry were rejecting massive bids for Callum O'Hare, who their most important players would have said, Yores and O'Hare and Harmer. and they've done it without one of them, with O'Hare being you know sustaining a, a, a serious injury and basically missing the campaign. Um, it's unbelievable what Mark Robbins has done at that football club. and you know I think often when you look at revolutionary managers at certain clubs, you know Nathan Jones is, is probably the best example. You look at the club as a whole and the infrastructure and you know you kind of realise that they're a well-run club on, on firm footing and the manager is is one cog in that. When you look at Mark Robbins his coaching staff at Coventry, he took over a club in total crisis with the relegation out of League One into League Two and somehow won the, the EFL Trophy at that time. But in that rise from League Two up to the Championship, as you mentioned, and up to where they are now, there have been so many massive off-field issues whether it was the you know the the stadium issue ground sharing with with Birmingham the ridiculous situation at the beginning of this season not a great deal of investment in terms of the the playing side of things but they're such a different you know club in terms of having off-field issues but yet on the pitch, everything clicking. And you know, Chris Badlam, I think, deserve massive credit for the way the squad was built before him. he moved on to, to Blackpool in a move that didn't go particularly well for anybody with him now then leaving the club. But Robbins has been the consistent and therefore it's impossible, as some some would do with Jones, not to credit him basically entirely with the unbelievable trajectory that this football club is on and the season they've had this season. Um the recruitment is still very impressive. They have so many talented young players that progress at, at Coventry. They play in a way where they're like irresistible on the break but can also be possession heavy at times if needed. They're going to be a massive player in this playoff race. And I think that Borough, having drawn with them one all today at home, I'm sure Borough fans leaving Riverside are thrilled that they've got to play them again twice um, coming up because they have players who can hurt you and they don't give too much away.
0: It's a really exciting playoff picture. Uh, looking forward to previewing it for you in a couple of days' time. Uh, just touch on a couple of the other results that mattered a little less in the end. Swansea three, West Brom two. Well, West Brom uh, ended up losing this game. Uh, whether they had won or not did not matter in the end. They would have still finished below Sunderland had they won this game. Uh, and we said that they did. Did they go ahead twice, West Brom, or was it just once? They were certainly ahead at one point. Twice. They've actually ended up finishing on the same points as Swansea, which is remarkable. Swansea's strong end of the season, uh, somewhat mirroring last season. Uh, we've both noted today that Russell Martin has been linked with Leicester City who were absolutely thumped today and whose um, potential to be playing in the championship next season uh, seems to be growing week on week. Uh, Plenty to discuss in the future there. Uh, Where else did we have some football in the championship? You can tell that I'm loading up a web page right now yes burnley george burnley 101 points for burnley uh, they beat cardiff 3-0 some of the goals were hilarious we both uh we heard gillette soccer saturday mention that it was ashley barnes's first goal at home since november and it led to me turning to you and saying what an amazingly weird team <laughs> because last week we spoke about manuel benson One of their star men, one of the league's star men, having started something like 12 or 13 matches this season out of 46. Then there's the fact that Ashley Barnes, who, due to injury for Jay Rodriguez, has actually started the majority of games this season up front for a team that have scored 87 goals and racked up 101 points. And it was his first home goal (laughs) since November to May. um, Three defeats only for Burnley all season. 29 wins, surpassing 100 points is just magnificent.
1: An incredible team. Um, Great that Vincent Company has signed the contract to stay there for next season. I'm intrigued to see how they're going to get on and if they continue with the expansive style that we've seen from them. Delighted to see Scott Twine play his part today with a trademark free kick. I wish he'd been fit um, and available for the whole season um, because I think he'd have been an entertaining part of one of the most entertaining teams we've seen at this level. Um, Just a complete breath of fresh air um they you know 101 points is an incredible achievement for us for a club and a side who are basically in transition um you know and have been in transition for the whole of the campaign this is a transition season from a previous era to another and um they've done it with such ease um yeah obviously it's been great having put them up at the beginning of the season as our as our winners um i remember a few people thinking we were mad at the time. But um, yeah, it's been ever since you and I watched their first game of the season against Huddersfield
0: at the Victoria Sports Bar and Grill, it's been an absolute joy. Certainly has. I think there's a few other bits and bobs that we could discuss, I think, right now, because we feel like we're, we're really reacting to some of the big news from final day. Um, we're probably going to wait until um, the dust has settled a little bit to really kind of dig a little deeper into s- some other stories. However, George, um, because the big game in the relegation battle happened on Thursday night. And because uh, Huddersfield's survival and Reading's relegation was confirmed on Thursday night, this is the first time we've been able to sit down and talk about it since. So let's just talk about um, Huddersfield and let's talk about Reading. We'll start with the positive. Huddersfield and Neil Warnock have, after beating Reading 2-0 today, finished the season with three straight wins. They finished the season 18th in the Championship. A Huddersfield team that... And don't check me on this I'm pretty sure we're bottom for the majority of the campaign <laughs> or at least the first like 25 30 games um, have stayed up in the end by nine points of course points deductions play a part in the in the gap there it wasn't straightforward but Warnock has done it again he doesn't guarantee survival we said I'm not going to put the blame on you we said it you said it he I, does he doesn't I agreed with you but in this instance he attained it. I wish I'd said that about Mick McCarthy instead. No, you did. If you go back and watch that, good. it was about Warnock and McCarthy. Nice. It was okay. about the concept of someone guaranteeing Guaranteed survival. survival.
1: Yeah, which, <laughs> which they don't, but he, he comes quite close to, to I'm a it. Gu- I'm a good friend. Aren't uh, I? I'm yeah, a good friend. And they've won again on final day against Reading as well. I mean, it's incredible what he's done. Um, and, you know, he said when he came in that it would be his, his best achievement in football. It's pretty hard to disagree with that. They were... Just a terrible side under Mark Fotheringham, and I don't think anyone could have foreseen the improvement. There's been a massive improvement, I think. Whether it's you know individual players, the team as a collective, just the motivation, like it's unbelievable what he's managed to achieve uh, with that group of players. And and also added to that, you know, they they had such a good start under him, and then things kind of tailed off after they squandered that lead against Rovers. And I thought maybe we're going to see them lose Sheffield United and have a, a big pressure game against Reading on final day. None of it. Six points to finish the season. Um, a word for Jack Radone as well, who I think has had a, a much better campaign than his numbers would suggest. And I'm looking forward to seeing what he does next season. He's going to stay, isn't he? Or not, you think?
0: Well, interesting. I he, He's he's definitely making loud noises about the fact that he won't be staying. Mm. But I wouldn't necessarily L- like, trust- like making loud noises about him retiring. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure, and with the greatest respect, whether we should um, fully believe him when mm. he says that. Uh, I, I I can only imagine that they will want him to stay and that they will make him an offer in order to do so. Uh, the next bit's up to him. Uh, the impact that he's had has been incredible. And actually, their first goal today was scored by Josh Caroma. And there's been this really sweet, like, bromance between Neil Warnock and Josh Caroma. I don't have the quote to hand because this is the least prepared I've ever been for a podcast. But <laughs> there was a quote that, that crossed my stratosphere in the last 24 hours about Warnock just saying... He makes me happy, Josh Kroema. He makes me smile, and like it's it's that sort of stuff that you hear a lot about when it comes to Warnock. And it might surprise certain people the way that he is with players, even as a septuagenarian uh, dealing with kids in their twenties. Who people like Coroma in particular, who like a lot of people haven't rated, have said, "Oh, he doesn't always fancy it." Things like that. Warnock's a master man manager. There's no doubt about that. And I think particularly in the in the short term, we've seen that here. Uh, I'm going to be honest, and I I don't want this to take away from Warnock at all. If anything, it adds to the myth, the man, the legend. Like I've got it on pretty good authority that he does next to nothing, <laughs> like during the week, compared to a lot of the younger modern managers. He's very hands off. He doesn't spend a huge amount of time on the training pitch. The players don't come into contact with him very often during the week. Aside from, and maybe this is the key, aside from I've been told he's very good at pulling players in for a quick chat in his office and saying, how are (laughs) you? Genuinely, this is what I've been told and I've every reason to believe the sources, right? That he pulls people in and he asks them how they are and he has a quick chat and he just connects somehow with people, with players, of all different ages and backgrounds and he leaves the training and a lot of the other hands-on stuff to other people and he pops in on a Friday or maybe a Saturday and he just gets everyone ready and off they go and play. And it flies in the face of so much of what we're told about coaching and management in the modern era. It flies so much in the face of probably how like, I think coaching and management in the modern era. Uh, Should be or will be certainly in in terms of the trends of the way it goes. And yet it has worked an absolute treat. And I just think it's so funny that it's worked a treat. I can't
1: wait for the Huddersfield Examiner's piece tomorrow saying, Annie Maxwell says Neil Warnock does nothing.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, it would be funny if that did come from the Huddersfield Examiner, because there's a certain Huddersfield Examiner writer called Stephen, who is probably my favourite journalist certainly club specific journalist i think the work that he does covering huddersfield is absolutely unbelievable and the reason why what you just said is particularly funny is that daniel story who's a brilliant football writer that i'm sure most people listening will know about who's also friends with Stephen chicken from the huddersfield examiner tweeted on friday morning after the win that ensured huddersfield survival neil warnock told the media that Stephen chicken's preview had persuaded him to change his team and thanked him for the win Amazing. how insane is that right firstly any local journos listening that must be <laughs> incredible to hear because I bet you all suspect that the managers read all of your previews and here is <laughs> proof that at least some of them do, even the ones in their 70s. But the fact that he's read that and gone like, oh yeah, that's a good point, that. And I think, I I don't want to get this wrong, but I think the change he made was something to do with playing Rahmani Edwards, Edwards Green at right wing back. I think that was it. He's literally made a very... Specific and tangible change to starting 11 uh, and has thanked Stephen for his work. And I just love that so much. And I think it adds to the myth of Warnock. Um, unfortunately, George, on the flip side, it meant that the third relegation spot joining Wigan and Blackpool in League One next season uh, is Reading. Reading's points deduction of of six points means they finished on 44. Uh, Now Cardiff were above them on 49. So if you apply six more points to Reading, they they would have had enough points to stay up. Of course, the context of the games that have taken place post the deduction and Cardiff knowing what they did or didn't need to do is going to make an impact on their own points tally. So uh, it's too simplistic to say that Reading would have stayed up had they not been deducted points. But of course, that is the, the key factor in their relegation, George. And I was asked by a few people on the squad on Friday. Like, oh, you guys must feel like really justified about uh, Reading getting relegated because there's always been a bit of a fun tete-a-tete where we've predicted Reading to be relegated for the last probably three seasons. And certainly for the two before this one, they stayed up, they stayed up comfortably. Uh, This season, they were famously top of the league, weren't they, after six or seven games? They started the season very, very well. And we've had some enjoyable and some slightly less enjoyable bits of back and forth on social media with, with Reading fans and I said well, well no not at all I don't feel justified at all Reading's points deduction rather than their performances on the pitch are the reason that they've been relegated the significant reason the principal reason if not the only reason and so that's a quite an important point to make as a team Reading did enough particularly in the, in the early months of the season probably to stay in the division even if In the last four or five months, they really have been a very, very poor team. Now, the other thing I would say is the off-field issues of certain clubs do play a part in how you predict them to do. The fact was Reading had been under embargo for like four windows in a row, was still under embargo. The fact is that Reading's owner has managed the club terribly over the last few years. And while he remains as owner of the club, I will never believe that the club will be run particularly well. Like all of that did feed into the prediction. And that's really what's come to pass. Reading's issues and their relegation, more than anything on the pitch, comes back to matters off it.
1: Exactly. And I think when you're predicting relegations, uh, especially in this era of point deductions, um, off-field issues uh, are going to play a massive part of that. And I think with, with Reading... Again, in my mind, when you look at their squad this season compared to the, their previous squads and the, the players that they've lost and haven't really really replaced um you know, Rinamoto, laurent being two that kind of spring to mind um it's pretty incredible that they have a master points tally this season that would have had them safe and, and fairly comfortably safe uh but and you know Lintz has certainly paid the price for. Maybe elevating expectations after a decent start to the season. Um, you know, did he did Paulin's do a good job? Is a pretty difficult question to answer in my mind. I, I don't really know. Um, I don't think he did a, a bad job throughout his tenure. Although things obviously towards the end had unravelled to an extent where it was hard to to make a case for him staying. Um, I really worry for Reading. Uh, you know, again, I always have to caveat anything I say about Reading by saying this isn't anything to do with some. Uh, rivalry between Oxford and Reading that I'm basically too young to have ever experience. Quite excited about them next season, though. Um, but I'm pretty worried about Reading going forward. I, I don't really see any reason right now, unless things massively change off the field, why they will be a force in League One next season. We've seen Ipswich come down and struggle. We've seen Sunderland come down and struggle. We've seen Sheffield Wednesday come down and struggle. I, I, I don't think Reading have anywhere near. The, um, I mean, the infrastructure, the resources to, to to challenge on the same level level as those teams, and come down as a poorer side in my view. Like it's, it's going to be a mammoth task. Forever takes over as manager. Um, I, yeah, it, it's hard for me to understand. Having said that, obviously the points tally has them as a, you know, a, not even a relegation side coming out of, out of out of uh, the championship, but um yeah i think there are concerns over all three relegated sides and with reading i think we've got to hope to, that when we sit down to our 1 to 24s next season there's some sign of a bit of stability off the pitch
0: yeah lots can change between today the 8th of may and the start of next season which i guess will be first weekend of august probably um and uh we hope that certainly for reading definitely for Wigan, uh, and even blackpool under different circumstances that uh, those three teams look in better shape and that the atmosphere of those clubs has changed enough uh, to look forward to a a season in League One because relegation does not always need to be the worst thing that exists in football Uh, and uh, hopefully some or all of those teams can kind of prove that again next season. So other results on final day, Uh, Wigan drew 0-0 with Rotherham. Uh, Watford beat Stoke 2-1, means that Watford did finish in the top half. Well, hey, 11th place for Watford. Uh, They won more games than they lost by one uh, but Norwich finished in 13th they lost at home to Blackpool that means they lost more games than they won this season for both of those teams frankly it's been an embarrassment for Watford and for Norwich lots of work for those two clubs to do as well Sheffield United beat Birmingham it means they finish on 91 points in second spot uh, 11 clear of third uh, third spot a fantastic A fantastic few weeks, a brilliant nine months all told. Bristol City beat QPR 2-0 in West London to finish 14th. QPR finished 20th on 50 points. Um, The uh, Luton game was nil all against Hull. Uh, Huddersfield beat Reading 2-1 as discussed and then uh, the aforementioned playoff picture matches as well. So that was the final day in the championship. we got a lot to look forward to in terms of the playoffs there. But first, let's take a look back at League One, where we had a few things to clear up. We needed to know who would be champions of League One. We needed to know who would finish sixth in League One. And we needed to know which of three teams would survive and which two would join Accrington and Forest Green in League 2 next year. And it didn't disappoint, I think it's fair to say. George, let's start at the top. Plymouth Argyle are champions of League 1. Despite conceding very early on against Port Vale, they, as they have done so many times this season, came back champions, triple figure points. Thanks very much and see you later.
1: I think if Plymouth Argyle had won the league in like a really poor renewal where <coughs> it didn't take very many points to do so, it would have been an incredible achievement for them to win the league ahead of Sheffield Wednesday and the resources that they've got on 96 points and then Ipswich town and the resources they've got on 99 points. So to finish above both of those two over the course of the season is basically miraculous. uh, When you consider, you know, not only the um, revenue that the clubs are able to, to bring in um, and the budgets that each club have. So therefore the, the massive gap that, they have to basically sc- straddle in order to to get up to those two anyway. Um, to finish the season the way that they have, you know, you think back to that defeat against Lincoln where it looked like maybe they were tiring or idling towards the line, um, and then just winning every game in since then, five wins in a row to go one 0 down on final day in a game where they had already, you know, secure promotion, um, but to come back and win the game three one to to be crowned as champions, you know, every single facet of the way that club has run been run this season has been so impressive Um, and you know as I tweeted yesterday I think if you are involved in any way in EFL football or especially in League One and League Two within a club you need to look at what Plymouth Argyle have done and understand that you know there's a a collective responsibility there that I love I think everyone involved in the club understands their roles their use of um, as you mentioned before of Market Insights who are a you know a a consultancy firm, a data data consultancy firm within transfers just goes to show that, you know, you can look outside the club for help. Um, the way that there's obviously been a massive buy-in from Stephen Schumacher, Ryan Lowe before him as to that side of the recruitment strategy has been amazing and I think quite rare at this level. You know, that they're not losing money. They're an EFL club and they've racked up 101 points this season. It it is just incredible. And as I said, you know, I know that a few Argar fans have had their you know, they're no, no put out joint a little bit by me saying that I think Ipswich are the best League One side we've seen in recent seasons. But in my mind, I would stand by that. You know, if, if Ipswich and, and Argyle were to play tomorrow at Wembley, Ipswich would be heavy favourites. There's no question about that, in terms of the, the bookmaker prices, I can guarantee you. So in my mind, the fact that Argyle have been able to perform to such a level where they've finished above Ipswich is a massive like it's testament to them and their achievement that they've done this you know a 46 game season as we say is an, is is the gauge of success over a season it is not a definitive gauge of quality um and for argyle to outperform Ipswich this season is just unbelievable and all credit to them i really hope they enjoy their um champion celebrations and i'm incredibly excited to see what business they do over the summer and how they're going to go next season.
0: Yes uh, on the day it was a youth academy product Adam Randall who scored a, a cracking equaliser someone who massively grew into his role in the team uh, wasn't starting a ton of games at the start of the season finishes with 29 starts and a, a crucial part of their midfield particularly with his range of passing. Uh, Callum Wright surely the pick of the January transfer window uh, signings. Uh, they needed a replacement for Morgan Whitaker, And so many teams would have said, how can we replace a player like him and might have looked for a similar player to him. But in some ways, Callum Wright has been able to replace Whitaker. Four goals and four assists, eight goal contributions in just under a thousand minutes is exactly what they needed. In terms of how he is as a player, he is not exactly the same as Whitaker, So I think it's another really interesting piece of recruitment where rather than just trying to find a like-for-like replacement, which seems like the obvious thing. Uh, Argyle went for a player that they felt uh, could impact the team in a similar role, but not necessarily in exactly the same way. And Wright was brilliant here, as he as he has been so often in the last few months. I think the, the last thing I wanted to say about Argyle that I noticed when I was doing a, a, the last bit of Argyle research uh, yesterday, I had a recording this, is that a lot of the first part of the season we spoke about how many shots that they faced compared to a lot of the teams around them, how that was somewhat concerning uh, in the long term, because in broad terms, if you keep facing a lot of shots, the chances of you conceding goals are are higher. Uh, Of course, Michael Cooper, their absolute star man between the sticks, um, kept so many of those shots at bay and, and helped them win so many points individually in the first part of the season. And that was why we were very concerned when he got injured and Callum Burton came in, has started the last 17 games not to take anything away from Burton, who's been excellent, who really has not put a foot wrong and has done exactly what he needed to. But what I've noticed is, and I wonder if this was a very specific tactical shift in some way from Stephen Schumacher, is that in the first 30 games of the season, the ones that Michael Cooper started, Argyle only conceded fewer than 10 shots in a game five times in 30. So 25 times they faced 10 shots or more in a game. But in the last 16 games that Burton has started... They've conceded fewer than 10 shots 10 times in those 16 games. So a huge shift in terms of the amount of shots that they've been giving up at a time where we certainly felt they absolutely needed to do that. They have protected Callum Burton. That's not to say that he necessarily needed it. His, his shot stopping has been good as it was. But I think that's the last like interesting bit of tactical analysis to offer. Uh, on Plymouth Argyle, they've only conceded 10 in their last 12 games again an improvement uh, on the first two-thirds of the season and of course they've been great going forward all season at uh, 28 times they scored two goals or more some brilliant finishing uh, has allowed them to overperform their expected goals number uh, in particular looking at individual tallies you're looking at Ennis uh, at Whitaker in the first half of the season Fina has scored a lot of great goals from range and Bali Mumba as well and those goals and that uh, finishing ability has helped them uh, do what they did George Ipswich We're going for 100 goals and 100 points. They got 100 goals. In fact, they got 101 goals, but they didn't get 100 points. Uh, They drew with Fleetwood. They finished second. They get promoted. It does mean a bit of history for you in terms of League One points tallies. This year's League One has seen the 4th, 8th and the 13th highest ever League One points tallies. I say ever, maybe in the last, I think, 30 years or so since three points a game came in. So Argyle... Uh, only one team has picked up more points than them. That was Wolves in 2013-14. 98-99 Fulham, 11-12 Charlton also picked up 101 points. There's Ipswich down in eighth, 98 points. Their plus 66 goal difference is the highest goal difference ever recorded in the third tier since three points for a win. Began in 81-82, in more than 40 years ago. And then there's Sheffield Wednesday. The 13th highest points tally in League 1 over the last 40 years. But they head into the playoffs with 96 points which takes us into the playoffs so playoff drama well yes there was actually thanks for asking peterborough went to barnsley and derby went to sheffield wednesday and peterborough are the ones who have leapfrogged derby into the sixth spot peterborough are the ones that will play sheffield wednesday in the playoff semi-finals Posh went ahead at Barnsley early through Johnson-Clark-Harris. That goal uh, plus Conor Chaplin's failing to score yesterday means that Clark-Harris and Chaplin share the golden boot. Uh, It wasn't an easy one for for Peterborough. They did come under some Barnsley pressure, particularly in the first half after they went 1-0 up, George. But the key moment in this discussion came at Hillsborough. And it came in the first half. It, It had been a fairly tight first half. David McGoldrick with a couple of chances for Derby, one particularly good save from Cameron Dawson. The big moment that really ultimately decided sixth spot was a red card for Curtis Davis, a penalty for Sheffield Wednesday, scored by Michael Smith. That game, finishing 1-0, no more goals there. Posh winning 2-0 at Barnsley and doing the job. Where do we need to start here? I think
1: in respect to Posh, we have to start with Posh. Um, And we'll get to Derby afterwards, because um, Peterborough, the side, who did what they needed to do, they got a a 2-0 win at Barnsley, which is an impressive achievement anyway. We know that Barnsley's home form has been so relentlessly good over the last few weeks with the exception of the the visit of Ipswich. And Posh coming into this game knowing that they basically had to win and pray for other things to go their way elsewhere. And then also, in a kind of strange way, Derby going behind kind of changed what Peterborough had to do in quite a weird psychological way where suddenly they were 1-0 up. They needed the, the the whole notion of them having to go 3-0 up in order to chase down Derby if it was a draw well, kind of went out of the window, but then they knew that they still might have to do that if Derby were to equalise. Yeah. So in my mind, it was quite weird. And it wasn't that, wasn't that surprising that Barnsley kind of grew into the game from then on because for, for Peter, they weren't really sure whether to sit on their lead or whether to try and carry on going forward in order to, to make it 3-0. And
0: it was interesting at the end as well when they were 2-0 up and the game was over. Yeah. But if Derby had scored, they'd suddenly have to. But they weren't really going. for No, well, they,
1: they didn't have a shot. I think from the seventeenth minute onwards.
0: My logic would have been: we should really try and get a third goal. Then it doesn't matter what Derby. And does. if we
1: concede, then we sit on our lead. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. I mean, it doesn't really matter because they because they, they want. I mean, they they want it, and I think it, it'll get lost because Derby are a Derby County, um, and because they're the story here, and because of the red card to Curtis Davis. I think it might get a little bit lost that Peterborough went to Barnsley and won on final day in order to get themselves in the playoffs. That is a a massive achievement from them. I think uh, Darren Ferguson, since he came in, has done an unbelievable job, to be honest. And, you know, he's said in the local press last week that he's not talking about his future until the end of the season. That is now not going to be for at least another 10 days or so. Um, And that, you know, he has no intention. There was some talk about him becoming director of football. He said he's got no intention of doing that. He wants to be a manager. And I personally think it would be totally mad if, if they weren't to offer him the job off the back of what he's done in the second half of this campaign um a massive win for them Clark Harris getting the the opening goal um is fitting I think they are going to be a, a difficult proposition for Sheffield Wednesday to negotiate over the um the next couple of games I think for, for Barnsley going to the playoffs this was a fairly decent performance you know they created enough themselves they're pretty poor until um until they went behind um but I wouldn't be too worried about you know. The, their form coming into the playoff doesn't look great on paper. I don't think there's too much to, to be too concerned about. Um,
0: key, key player for me, just to shout out, was Jack Taylor of Peterborough United. And not just because he scored the the header from a set piece uh, that put them 2-0 ahead. But he was absolutely excellent. He plays in the most advanced midfield position of the three. Um, he's so relentless he's he's one of those players who doesn't drift in and out of games he's constantly after it his stamina is unbelievable Uh, he's Good on the ball. He's got a decent passing range, but really it's his kind of goal threat breaking from midfield that I think really uh, allows him to stand out. A bit like Adam Phillips as well. Barnsley have a player like that too. I think it's such a a brilliant player to have, particularly if you've also got a front three that all offer quite a lot in terms of goals and and creativity like Posh do with Mason Clark and Poku and Clark Harris. Taylor just basically levitates them or elevates them rather, not levitates. Oh, that's a nice little verb. He doesn't levitate at all. (laughs) He elevates them from being like a a good attack to like a very good multi-dimensional attack. And he was brilliant here. And before his goal, he'd had a couple of good efforts saved as well. He was really the one for me that was dragging posh uh, from 1-0 to 2-0 up um, in those moments. George, the the red card of Curtis Davis and the penalty... uh, I think we need to talk about this. So like Personally, I probably won't surprise anyone who listens to the pod um, and has done for a long time. I'm incredibly uncomfortable with the way that people have been talking and tweeting about this incident, as if it was uh, an absolute disgrace, as if um, just uh, because of the referee being completely wrong, uh, Derby have missed out on the playoffs and they deserve to have made the playoffs and, and it's unfair on them that the referee's decision means that they won't. Um, I'm really interested to hear your thoughts on this because mine are fairly clear, but I'm also willing to accept that there might be something I'm missing. I realise that the magnitude of the game and the importance of the incident, a red card and a penalty, is, is about as impactful a thing as you can have in the first half of a football match. But what a referee has to do in any game, final day, opening day, 23rd day of the season... And what I think we have to do as well in our job is try and remove a lot of the noise, remove a lot of the drama, remove just a lot of the stuff and understand that there are laws of officiating in the game and therefore strip everything aside as as best we can and ask some fairly simple questions, which are, in my opinion, is there a foul offence? And what do the laws of the game say about a foul of that nature? So did Curtis Davis commit a foul? Yes. On Marvin Johnson. I agree. I think that he did commit a foul. Any discussion that goes, yeah, but it was quite soft. Yeah, but Marvin Johnson made the most of it. uh, In this discussion that we're having the day after the game as the dust has settled, does not matter at all. So if we both believe that it's a yes, and some people may disagree, the laws of the game are very clear (laughs) in this incident and it's got nothing to do with anyone on the line, and it's got nothing to do with anyone being the last man. Those words don't exist. They're just a complete fallacy when we talk about refereeing decisions. In the laws of the game, denying a goal or an obvious goal scoring opportunity is where a player commits an offense against an opponent within their own penalty area, which denies an opponent an obvious goal scoring opportunity and the referee awards a penalty kick. So it's an offense, we've agreed with that. I cannot see how you couldn't call it an obvious goal-scoring opportunity. Mm-hmm. The player is cautioned, yellow-carded, if the offence was an attempt to play the ball in all other circumstances, holding, pulling, pushing, no possibility to play the ball, the offending player must be sent off. Again, the strength of the pull. Irrelevant. Irrelevant. That's what the offence was. And all that being said, I think it was the right decision.
1: I agree. And I think you've laid out <coughs> the um difficulties in talking about refereeing decisions really well where a lot of the reasons that people generally come up with on both sides of the argument uh, as you say, it's kind of a myth. Um and I you corrected me on something the other day on on a similar line where um you know, the only argument you said he can't make an argument, I think anyone who's ever seen Marvin Johnson kick a ball with his right foot would probably think that probably is much of a scoring <laughs> opportunity. But but apart from that, you know, Johnson is about to pull the trigger. Davis tugs him from behind he's making no intention to play the ball it's in the area he's preventing a goal-scoring opportunity and as you say it doesn't matter like you never see those given irrelevant doesn't matter doesn't mean it shouldn't be given by the letter of the law and it doesn't matter about the what's at stake or the time in the the game if that had been after 10 seconds it should be a red card Um, if that's not the way that you like the game to, to be officiated your issue here isn't with the referee it's with the laws of the game and I would argue with the referees that don't implement them properly. So I know it's frustrating for Derby fans. I know there'll be a lot of Derby fans who maybe listen to the podcast and they'll never listen to us again because of it. And that is because football is tribal. And I hope we don't offend you. It's nothing to do with Derby. It's nothing to do with Curtis Davis. There's no media bias. This is just the way the
0: game is. From, I have from two neutral observers. said to myself, as long as I can look myself in the mirror and say to myself, whatever you've said is what you believe and what you believe to be true. Then I will have no regrets. So therefore, you
1: think levitating is a verb is <laughs> you can use in that? <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly, exactly. Um, well, it was a huge blow for Derby County. There's no doubt about that. It made their task incredibly uh, difficult, and they just weren't able to m- muster enough in the second half. Uh, you know, didn't help that they were playing a very, very strong team in front of a, a very, very large home crowd, and I think they found it very, very difficult from that point. There was one James Collins. Opportunity, a shot blocked brilliantly, uh, I think possibly by Iorfer, Um and, and that was that. And Sheffield Wednesday won 1-0 and Peterborough make the playoffs. And you mentioned Darren Ferguson and his impact. He was appointed on the 4th of January. Everyone laughed because Darren Ferguson was being appointed Peterborough manager again. And Darren McCantony and, and pals were uh, accused of not being very imaginative with their appointments. But I, I sort of like this logic of we know these people because we have worked with them before multiple times. We know their characters. We know their personality. So we have a fair idea of what they're going to bring our club. And there have been good times with these people, Grant McCann and Darren Ferguson in particular, and there have been bad times. But the, we, it, it's almost like we know so much about them that at least we can be very confident in what we're getting, right? And we often talk about appointing managers and how quickly a board will appoint someone going he's obviously the best candidate for this this and this and five months later sack them mm-hmm. as if to say no 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 that, no, no, that wasn't good at all <laughs> and actually that's you know that's a, a flaw in a in appointing managers since he's been appointed 42 points from 22 games so just under two ppg they've been a great team and crucially, seven points more than Derby in that time, who have had a, a couple of wobbles over the last few months and in particular have really struggled away from home. So Sheffield Wednesday up next for Peterborough, uh, a Wednesday team who have now won four in a row heading into the playoffs. Got Josh Windass back uh, as well from injury uh, in somewhat better shape than they seemed four weeks ago. Barnsley against Bolton will be the other playoff semi-final. We will have a bumper playoff preview pod uh, Wednesday or Thursday this week, which we're both very excited about. But more to do before then. Um, certainly feels like a strong quad of playoff teams I'm really looking forward to that down at the bottom George relegation was decided Uh, one of three teams were going to stay up it was either going to be MK Dons Morecambe or Cambridge United narratives galore for all three as it is it's Cambridge United who beat Forest Green 2-0 that wasn't all that was necessary because had Morecambe beaten Exeter they would have stayed up with a win if MK Dons had beaten Burton Cambridge and Morecambe's results wouldn't have mattered. They would have stayed up with a win. But Morecambe fell, 3-2 at Exeter, and MK Dons could only draw nil at Burton. 31 shots to five. One off the woodwork, six on target, 12 off target, and 13 blocked. Burton the party poopers once again. MK relegated, Morecambe relegated. Cambridge United survive. Your initial thoughts.
1: My initial thought is wow. Um, <laughs> Great it's, thought. It's also not initial because it's been a day. So,
0: <laughs> What was your initial thought? Wow. And what's your thought now?
1: Whoa. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it's been crazy at the bottom of League One this season. And even in the last week, we've, you know, we've seen Cambridge in the, with that midweek game at Burton go from being the team who are likely to stay up to maybe the, the least likely on the, on the day. And then on the day, then being the side who needed a win, got the win. Needed neither M- MK or Morecambe to win, and neither did. Um, it was. It's just an incredible achievement from Cambridge, where um, Mark Bonner. And it's not often we get to kind of chart this this kind of season because normally, when a manager has a campaign like Mark Bonner had, they're sacked, and therefore we never really learn what would have happened. And you know, it's been a bit of a theme, I think, this season in terms of my opinion on football in this country, is that the sacking culture is. is getting a little bit out of control and um, there just seems to be this assumption amongst fan bases and boardrooms that making a change is is always gonna have a positive impact if you're undergoing a period of uncertainty and especially when you have considered that Cambridge United with you know in terms of their pre-season aspirations in terms of where they sit with their budget uh, within League One survival in itself is an achievement so the fact that they were down in the relegation zone for so long doesn't necessarily mean that the good work that Mark Bonner has done should be ignored, and therefore he should get sacked. I'm over the moon for him that he has managed to pull this off. I really hope um, you know any question marks about why they were down there in the f- in the first place aren't leveled at him. I think the Sam Smith run of form, culminating in one of the goals of the season um, with the the second goal against Forest Green of Van esque volley at the back post, um, has been the reason for their for their return. I think Smith's out of contract. Um, it'll be interesting to see whether or not they can they can keep him um, for next season. But it's, yeah, delighted for them. For MK, it's going to be incredibly frustrating because they went to Burton and they played pretty well and they dominated in a way that Cambridge were not able to do in midweek. And despite having so many opportunities, were unable to force that ball over the goal line. But at the end of the day, they've been relegated because of a fairly underwhelming season rather than what happened on one day. And I... Yeah, with MK, um, uh, I'd be fairly positive that so long as they don't panic and tear up the blueprint that got them to you know at the playoffs last year and, and very in touching distance to the championship, it won't be long till they're back in League One.
0: Yeah, you would hope that that lessons have been learned. I still, I, I, if I'm honest, George, I'm still struggling to explain how MK went from a team that finished third last season had that incredible final day where they smashed uh, Argyle, Scott Twine scoring a hat-trick. Um, from third to 21st, in this League One, I still don't really understand how the hell that happens. Is it as simple as they lost Twine, they lost Matt O'Reilly, the January, they lost Harry Darling? Are you sort of happy to accept like the departure of players that have that amount of quality... Is enough to have that big an impact on a team the fans are pointing at summer recruitment and saying you know there was no shock that we lost those players we knew that we were losing those players and basically suggesting that the the replacement of them was complacent or poor or over confident that like yeah we'll just find more players like that clearly they didn't the players that they signed as a squad were not able to to get anywhere near the levels that were acceptable first under Liam Manning and then uh, what a slight improvement under Mark Jackson? I think in time, I don't think there's
1: anything necessarily in my mind to suggest that had MK st- stuck with Liam Manning, they wouldn't have got more points. I'm not saying they would have done, but I don't think there was like a tangible improvement. I think they went on a better run at one point, but I certainly think in the kind of immediate aftermath of Jackson coming in, I think the performances maybe got a little bit worse. Um, you know, they recruited to play a certain way. They, um, haven't played that way for the last six months or so under Jackson um, I don't think it was complacency necessarily I think that maybe overconfidence in terms of their model being good enough to recruit from uh, you know worse football a worse standard of football than League One and being being able to integrate a lot of good players quite quickly I remember last summer you know whether it was Devoy or Holland or whatever you know there were a lot of players coming in that everyone was like yeah nice exciting signing MK doing M- MK things again but yeah. um, maybe they just lacked the one or two players like Darling and Twine who are the very worst championship quality to elevate them back to that level. Um, it's been a mess. There's no denying that. Um, I do, you know, obviously as an Oxford fan, I, I went back to the run under, under Leah Manning back when we, we signed um, Manning himself and they started the season like, unbelievably badly and performances, results, everything was, was just totally off. And you'd think the squad chairman have a big part to play in that he alluded to it at the time where they sacked him where actually the performances were getting a lot better under Manning late on in the tenure but he, you know again what I spoke about the sacking culture they felt the need that they had to do something to arrest the slide and that means sacking the head coach um, I would maybe think that had they not done that they might have been in a better better position but who knows as I say I, I'm fairly confident that, that they you know they, they certainly don't have many players that are going to be on the wish list of, of other clubs going forward to next season um, but I would have except for you know Moise is probably the one who, who probably will move on but I'd be confident that they will be a, a pretty good League Two side next season so long as I don't panic sack Liam Sweeting, which I know is probably what quite a lot of fans want. But when there's a track record of, of building success, one season shouldn't alter um, the, you know, the, the wider plan.
0: Going back to Cambridge and Mark Bonner, just wanted to echo what you said. I'm so pleased for, for him. I'm pleased for those who gritted their teeth and did not sack him when almost anyone else would have done. From the 4th of September... Until the 31st of March, Cambridge won four league games in 30. They picked up only 17 points in 30 games. Even Forest Green got five points more than Cambridge did in that group of 30 matches. Their attack dropped off a cliff. They scored only just better than a goal every other game in that time. But they didn't sack Mark Bonner. And I don't know this for sure, but I suspect they realised or rather they understood their club. They understood the context of Cambridge United. They understood their position in the in the food chain. They probably understood the incredible ascents that they have had under Mark Bonner. And I think they probably recognise and appreciate that there's a possibility that things can take a turn after two or three amazing seasons of punching above your weight, that there's a chance things might slow down a little bit and that the reasons for that happening are not as simple as, our previously genius manager that we thought was the greatest manager we've had in the club's modern history is now somehow bad at it. They realise that that's probably not how it works. And I think during that poor spell, Bonner kept leading the club in a very impressive manner. I think he did himself a huge favour with his temperament and with his leadership. He didn't get defensive. He didn't start blaming fans or players. I don't remember him getting hugely chippy. With the press or feeling like angry or defensive, like you often see managers do kind of understandably when they're under pressure, he just kept chin up, kept trying to lead as best he could. And I think that spell, more so than any of the good times, shows that he's, in my opinion, an amazing leader and a manager who will surely have more Amazing spells in his managerial career. Maybe next season with Cambridge United, we we wait and see. Uh, they finished the season with five wins from nine. That's why they've retained safety. Uh, and lastly, George on Morecambe, they suffered relegation as well. Strikes me we've got a club that didn't change their manager and stayed up. A club in MK that did change their manager and still went down. And in Morecambe, who did not change their manager, Derek Adams uh, have gone down, albeit with a serious late rally. It's the first relegation in the club's history. It will be feeling very alien and pretty horrible today. It's hard to know exactly how to pitch this. Along with Accrington-Stanley, there's an understanding that for Morecambe to have been in League One in the first place was you know, one level below, miraculous in football terms. For them to have stayed up last season under Derek Adams was fairly miraculous in footballing terms. This season, they just haven't been good enough quite.
1: Mm. Yeah, and again, there's no failure here. This this isn't Derek Adams. It's not his fault. You know, there's no um, slight you can make against any of the people involved on the, on the playing side of things. I mean, obviously there have been off-field issues this season. I think the long-term future and ownership of the club is currently up for. You know, it's up for change and, and debate as to whether or not that is going to be a positive thing or not. I, I certainly approach, um, given the stories I've read about the prospective new owner. Um, it with some trepidation, especially because Morecambe to me are the club that show how you know a, a minnow within EFL terms, League One, League Two terms can punch above their weight. Um And I really hope that that kind of tradition isn't put. You know, we, we've seen what's happened at Crawley so far this season, and there are quite clearly concerns as to the um, suitability of the of the future owners within the EFL, let alone within within the media. But on you know, in terms of footballing standpoint, the they came incredibly close to being able to get themselves out of this mess. I actually thought going into yesterday they were the team who I thought might go to Exeter and get get a win out of the game and and, and force their way to safety. Carl Stockton's return to form has come at an opportune time for him, where I think you know that the club that he's going to play for next season, if it isn't to be Morecambe, has probably in my mind gone up a league um, than it would have done if he'd if he hadn't found his scoring form in the last couple of months. Uh, it wasn't quite enough to save them from relegation, which is a massive shame. But four teams have to get relegated out of League One. I think you can make a, a huge case for um, a failure to achieve acceptable levels of performance from Accrington, from MK Dons, and from um, Forest Green. I don't think you could say that about about Morecambe. I think they're you know they've they've made a, a hell of an effort of it again. And as long as Derek Adams is there, I, I wouldn't rule out them you know, upsetting a few people. I mean, I wonder, having always been favourites for relegation out of League Two, despite not much changing in terms of the club itself, where they'll rank in the in the book, bookies odds for the beginning of next season yeah, in back that in that league.
0: I'm highly concerned about the situation uh, in terms of the ownership, as you alluded to. The fact that the sale hasn't gone through and many months after it was first mooted uh, suggests that the prospective buyer is having a tough time proving his funds or his business plan to the EFL and, and the EFL are being stricter on this now. Um, clearly the current owners cannot sustain things uh, and we know that because they've been open with the fact that the prospective owner has put in significant investment into the club in the last few months to keep it afloat, including cash injections to, to pay delayed wages in March. So it's a it's a really... Concerning situation uh, that really needs to be sorted before anyone starts thinking about next season. Um, so that was the final day in League One. Oh, and a last word for in that game a hat trick scored by Jay Stansfield of Exeter City, uh, the last game of his loan at Exeter City, scoring goals and celebrating them by pointing. Uh, at his father's name which adorns one of the stands at Exeter City the Adam Stansfield stand uh, the youngest player to score a hat-trick in the top four tiers this season Jay Stansfield and it's been uh, such a wonderful aspect of this season in covering these leagues uh, and we really look forward to seeing where he ends up uh, next season it was uh, the perfect farewell uh, if it is to be farewell from the loney from Fulham Jay Stansfield and a, a great great moment despite the sadness for Morecambe uh, elsewhere in League 1 Cheltenham drew 2-2 with Charlton, Fleetwood and Ipswich drew, as discussed. Lincoln got a win against Shrewsbury Town, which means that Lincoln City finished the season in 11th place, which is an astonishingly good finish uh, from Mark Kennedy and that Lincoln City side. Uh, Oxford lost at home to relegated Accrington. Uh, That game, with very little on it in the end, could have been quite nervy, but uh, Oxford had got the job done in the previous few games. Uh, Pompey and Wickham drew 2-2, one of the goals of the season scored by Lewis Wing, of course. Uh, And that was pretty much it for League One. Uh, In League Two, George, the drama came... Well, there wasn't a huge amount of drama, was there? That's not to say that there wasn't a feeling of tension in the second half. But ultimately, ten minutes after the final whistle, we sit here and we wonder what the best moment of final day in League Two was.
1: It was just a massive drama flirt, wasn't it? Like, we were always on the edge. We were always, like, one goal away from drama. And then it never really
0: came. I feel like I should have said what actually happened. Well,
1: the mo- I mean, Northampton are, are finally promoted out of League Two. And that is, without question, the big story of the day. I think the moment of the day has to come from the League Two player of the season. And in my view, the correct League Two player of the season scoring a 25-yard screamer on final day to send your team up is probably the the final uh, flourish to a campaign that, that deserves that accolade. And it was an incredible goal. And, you know, I've, Probably not given Northampton Town the respect that some of their fans would think they deserve. I think this again tracks in my mind as being a typical Cobblers win over the last couple of seasons. A wonder goal from Hoskins, some last-ditch defending, the opposition missing a fair few chances and just getting over the line by a single goal. But fair play. Like their mentality over the last couple of years since relegation from League One has been incredible. And Hoskins, they've got such a reliable talisman, an incredibly versatile player. He can basically play anywhere down the, that right flank, played right back last weekend, um, scores incredible goals and a lot of them as well. Um, and, you know, to go one and up in a game like that away from home, you're going to concede chances. You're going to be nervy. Um, there was one uh, very, very bad clearance, <laughs> which led to, you know, which is the one moment of kind of, uh, which looked like they might be on the edge of, of throwing it away. But, you know, in the end, Stockport didn't even win at home to Hartlepool so they've done it fairly comfortably and they joined Stockport sorry they joined um, Stevenage and they're in, in, in League One next season and their fans I think after what happened last season having to withstand watching Bristol Rovers make it seven against Gunthorpe to, to take that promotion spot away from them it would have been heartbreaking I think for any neutral fan involved in this to have seen their fans having to make do with fourth place again.
0: Four points above Stockport. Yeah easy. Finished Northampton town In the end, the third place team in League 2 promoted to League 1 and it's been an incredible two years for them, really, having suffered relegation from League 1. I mean, look at the teams who got relegated from League 1 to League 2 last season. Crew Alex, the best of the bunch, have finished 13th. Gillingham have finished 17th, Doncaster 18th and Wimbledon 21st. There's something about the drop from League 1 and League 2 where there's no life jacket that keeps you towards the top of League 2 there's no life jacket that keeps you in the top half of League 2 even Uh, and yet Northampton under John Brady's leadership and I think leadership is the word that springs to mind for me when I think of John Brady uh, have been an amazing team last season uh, who in in almost every other circumstance would have won automatic promotion um, but didn't uh, and then this year have rallied to do exactly that and they've had to fight against a lot Uh, every team suffers injuries but it is not completely crazy to suggest that Northampton's injury issues, particularly in the last couple of months, have been among the worst in League Two. Just today, they were missing Maguire, McGowan, Sowerby, Guthrie, Fox, Coyke, Harrop, Odomayo, and Maxted. That is at the very least four of their best eleven if everyone is fit, missing. Particularly defensively, they've been patched up and they've got it over the line uh, off the back of, of Hoskins's goal, uh, Hoskins' goals, of course, but also a Aperes' industry, Mitch Pinnock's uh, delivery from set-pieces, his threat from range, uh, some big contributions from Kieran Bowie uh, at important times. They've just grinded it and they've done it uh, and they'll be in League One next season. And I'm, I'm pleased because... I've been banging on the last few weeks, reminding people they did not bottle it last season by any stretch. They won their game on final day. They won four of their last five. And again, this season, to finish the season under pressure from others chasing them, they've won the games that they needed to win uh, and they've won promotion as well. Stockport drew one all with Hartlepool. So even, uh, they didn't even need the win in the end, uh, Northampton Town. It was a bit of a weird game in that Stockport had uh, certainly the running of it for the most part, uh, George. But, uh Hartlepool, already relegated, have had a bit of fun in their final uh, game in the EFL for the foreseeable. In particular, one of their players, goalkeeper Ben Killip, who put together surely one of the individual performances of the League Two season. Ten shots on target. Killip saved nine of them, including a penalty save right at the end. Uh, But a couple of those in there as well were some astonishing reflex saves.
1: Yeah, good time to do it. Live on Sky, final day. Um, with, for a team who are about to get relegated to the, to the national league, is Kilip Stock has definitely um, you know gone up in the last couple of hours. Uh, yeah, but he made a string of saves. Look, it doesn't really matter in the end. I think there'll be frustration from Stockport's point of view that they were unable at home in a massive game to see off a relegated side. Having said that, you know Hartlepool under John Askey have been okay. They've been relatively solid. Their form hasn't been bad at all. Um, In my mind, Stockport certainly go into the playoffs as the favourites. They will be the bookmakers' favourites. Maybe some frustration from them. I think that Carlisle got a, um, you know, that there's that double goal swing late on that means that it's Salford who they play in the next round. Salford obviously been in much better form than Carlisle recently. Um, A difficult, uh, you know, team to play over two legs. Um, But, you know, they've been a quality side for, for the majority of the campaign. And, you know, it didn't matter in the end. Had they won that game, had they scored that penalty late on from camps, uh, they still would have fallen just short because of the cobbler's results.
0: In the playoff places, Mansfield needed to win to make it in any way interesting. And they did, George. Mansfield won up in the first half. They scored their second in injury time. They had other chances to get a third goal, but they didn't take them. And because Salford lost 1-0 at home to Gillingham, a penalty scored by Shea Alexander... Because Mansfield won by two goals and Salford lost by one goal, Mansfield have missed out on the playoffs by a single goal. They're on the same points as Salford, 75, but their plus-17 goal difference plays Salford's plus-18 goal difference, both teams scored 72 goals. The joint top scorers in League Two, but Salford conceded one fewer. So Stockport will play Salford, Carlisle will play Bradford. We're just off the back of the final whistles in these games. So I'm trying to work out really where the drama came from. I guess it was Salford falling a goal behind and, and not coming back, um, opening the door somewhat for Mansfield. But even then, you know their second goal didn't come until the 98th minute. So if I'm honest, it never felt that likely, and uh, I don't believe there were any guilt-edged chances after it was 2-0. So um, there wasn't a ton of drama in League Two final day, I think it's fair to say, but we've got some pretty fascinating playoff games uh, ahead of us. Uh, Commiserations to Mansfield for missing out the future uh, of Nigel Clough will be interesting. We'll see whether the board will back him to go again next season or whether they might Decide to twist and try a new approach as they look to get out of this division, Uh, something they've thrown a lot of money at over the last five years or so. Uh, Elsewhere in the division there was not a huge amount to be honest. Swindon beat Crawley 2-1 and Swindon have appointed Mike Flynn to take charge of them next season. Walsall beat Doncaster 2-1, Flynn's old side. uh, Stevenage beat Barrow 1-0. Harrogate and Rochdale drew 1-1. Grimsby beat Wimbledon 1-0. Bradford and Orient drew one all as did Sutton and Carlisle and Newport and crew drew two two. Please make sure you join us for our playoff preview podcast. I will be honest, it's in my top five favourite pods of the year. I absolutely love weighing up everything that there is to weigh up with four teams heading into a playoff format. Uh, the playoffs, as we often say, are the greatest thing that exists in sport, professional sport, uh, the world over. So make sure that you're with us for the ride. Uh, thank you for listening to this EFL final day recap. Hope you've enjoyed it. Let us know what you think at NTT20pod on Twitter. Sign up to the Substack, .substack ntt20.substack.com and we'll speak to you in a couple of days' time. Go out!